America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the fight for human rights and lessons learned from the wars in Afghanistan. Our guest is Nader Nadari, an honorary senior fellow at the Asser Institute for International and European Law. Mr. Nadari was a member of the Afghan government's peace negotiation team for the Doha peace process. Previously, he served as chairman of the Independent Civil Service Commission of Afghanistan and as a senior advisor to the Afghan president on public and strategic affairs. Prior to joining the government, Mr. Nadari was director of the Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit and commissioner of the Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission. Mr. Nadari studied law and political science at Kabul University earned his master's degree in international relations from George Washington University, and is a graduate of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. In 1948, following the brutality of World War II, Afghanistan voted to adopt the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to enshrine rights and freedoms for all human beings. Twenty-five years later, a coup d'etat ended over two centuries of continuous monarchical government in Afghanistan. The subsequent half-century of political instability and war produced extraordinary loss, suffering and hardship for the Afghan people, and constant struggle to protect human rights. Afghanistan experienced three coup d'etats in the late 70s, all involving the brutal murder of the previous leader and the murder or imprisonment of his family. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979 and installed a puppet regime in Kabul. The government ruled the urban areas with an iron fist. Dissenters were arrested, killed, or simply disappeared. In rural areas, the anti-Soviet Mujahideen conducted attacks against the Soviet army and rival Mujahideen factions with limited regard for non-combatants, who often bore the brunt of the fighting. Government institutions and judicial processes collapsed along with the Soviet puppet regime in 1992, and the country slipped into a bloody four-year-long civil war. Mujahideen factions dominated by ethnic and tribal rivalries fought for control of the country. Indiscriminate violence, including murder, rape, torture, and summary execution, were commonplace. Militias often bombed and targeted civilians. The Taliban promised to bring religion and law and order back to Afghanistan as they gained power in 1996. But they imposed their own brand of terror and brutality as they suppressed women, conducted public executions, and enforced medieval punishments against anyone who did not adhere to their perverted interpretation of Islamic law, or Sharia. After the most devastating terrorist mass murder in history on September 11, 2001, the United States, its coalition partners, and anti-Taliban Mujahideen overthrew the Taliban government. Afghans, with international support, rebuilt institutions from the ground up. 
the new government enacted legislation to secure rights of all Afghans. Girls returned to school, and courts and judicial processes were reestablished, as were media and civil society organizations. An expanding insurgency by the Taliban, their jihadist terrorist allies, and their Pakistani sponsors perpetuated violence as organized crime, corruption, warlordism, and a growing illicit drug trade undermined efforts to build a strong Afghan state. However, Afghanistan made extraordinary progress in representative government, rule of law, education and freedoms of the press, and freedom of speech in the two decades of international support that followed the collapse of the Taliban government in 2001. Sadly, the Taliban government is reversing those gains after the U.S. withdrew its support for the Afghan government and security forces and the fall of the Afghan government in August 2021. The Taliban has reintroduced its brutal interpretation of Sharia. The Taliban have closed girls' schools, stifled human rights, and reestablished rule by fear. We welcome Nader Nadari to discuss human rights law, the dire situation in Afghanistan, and what more can be done to foster peace, protect innocence, and work toward a post-Taliban future in which the Afghan people might enjoy the peace and security they so richly deserve after so much suffering. Nader Nadiri, welcome to Battlegrounds. It's wonderful to see you after so many years. I'm glad you're safe. I'm glad your family's safe. I'm sorry for the difficulties you've had to encounter, but thank you for being with us on Battlegrounds. Well, General, it's a pleasure to see you again, and thank you for having me. It's, it's great to see you after so, so many years, but it's wonderful to see you still that passionate, and thank you for your care for the people of Afghanistan and for what's, what's happening in the country. Well, thanks for your extraordinary service and the service of human rights and, and then to, to help build a better future for generations of Afghans to come. And I know it's extremely heartbreaking what we're going to be talking about today, and, uh, but I think it's really important for our viewers, for our listeners to understand really what went wrong in Afghanistan, and, but also to celebrate uh, those who made so many sacrifices and who shed you know, sweat and blood to, uh, to, to build a better future. You know, I think a lot of Americans not are there looking at the collapse you know, in August of, of, of last year, and they're asking, why, why did it collapse so quickly? And, and you know, when we first met, we were working on counter-corruption and organized crime, and in particular, the problem associated with criminalized patronage networks who were hollowing out the institutions that were critical to the state's survival. You know, in your last job, you took this on as well, right, in civil service reform and trying to, to strengthen and harden the Afghan state against the regenerative capacity of the Taliban. Can you maybe talk about your efforts and your analysis of why we together were unable to build the kind of resiliency in the Afghan state over two decades? Well, thank you, General. Uh, to look at why we failed at the end, and such a catastrophic failure, first on our part and the part of Afghans and the leadership and everything, and then our international partners. It was, it was a collective effort of making Afghanistan a better place for its people, if not a Denmark or, or if not a Switzerland, but at least a better place for the Afghans itself. We didn't get there, unfortunately. We need to go back to the origin of it. When at the Bonn Conference, the new Afghan state uh, or 
government was this formed is, This again. is 2002, 2002. To bring Afghan leaders together in Bonn yes. to determine what government replaces the Taliban. Absolutely. In November 2001, the conference got together. I was a participant, a teenager, activist. I was happened to be invited by UN to be at that forum. So the first thing that happened there was a rush in setting up something to match politically with the military advances that was happening against the Taliban on the ground. And this rush in making a setup resulted in losing some of the sides. As an example, Taliban defeated, they could be part of something as a political actor, but not anymore as an actor uh, uh, on the military front. We missed that. And then the setup of the government that was set at the time was not rightly done also. But at least we had developed a roadmap. And that roadmap for two years brought about a colossal task of state building, from building it from scratch. We lost all the public institutions. The government was non-existent. So it was bringing back from ashes and making a state to function from a collapsed state. And it was only put a timeline of two years, but at least there was a blueprint, there was a roadmap, which UN, the United States and others were heavily involved to help. The minute that roadmap ended after the presidential election, because it was pushed for permanent state institutions so quickly, so fast, and a group of people who were not yet uh, uh, experienced in the art of state management and governance. And, and many people who were, Weren't, un weren't familiar with Afghanistan. Absolutely. And especially Afghanistan's recent history, right? And the fact Absolutely. that, that it really against the backdrop of the Soviet occupation, the resistance to Soviet occupation, uh, the, the very destructive civil war from 92 to 96, mm -hmm. and then the pure hell of Taliban rule. Absolutely. Who, and they, they destroyed, the Taliban destroyed anything that you, we would regard as an institution. Yes. So it was really building these institutions out of the rubble, essentially. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and putting pieces together. And we made a significant progress in the past 20 years. And thanks to all the blood and treasure of, of our international partners and, and our own Afghans, both the soldiers that stood and defended the Afghan constitution and gave the ultimate sacrifice for it, and our partners, including the U.S. forces, that who did uh, uh, gave ultimate sacrifices. But we failed uh, uh, to, to notice on the fundamentals of building a state. First, to build a state needed to be done with a new culture and to build it on uh, values of accountability. That's what people were expecting. Right. The United States and the coalition were there to help us build a clean transparent, state, transparent, that there is accountable and accountability to people. Mm -hmm. and, peop and within a few years, people saw that that was not happening. As an example, those, the hand in blood was still supported and were part of the government. Right. And that capture of institutions and then building the new institutions. And you're institutions. talking about the warlords. You're talking about those who had, uh, in many cases, criminal backgrounds and who had been predators. Uh, you know, uh, to, toward the Afghan people, I'm thinking of the, the initially the governor of Kandahar, who then moved to uh, to Jalalabad. Yes. This is Golag Ashurzai is one example of many, right? Yeah, who were empowered in the wake of the collapse of the Taliban. Absolutely. So w what happened? The odd characters who knew not of public service, but seeing the government as a part of their share of what they did the decade before were given the task of building this new state. 
And that's where they taught every part of the public institutions are their capture and they're entitled to do with it the way they wish to do. Right. While the public wanted a different, so of course, civil society started growing. And unfortunately, some of our Afghans who came from the diaspora, they also were not as committed as those other uh, that we had as warlords. Right, and, and we're not as knowledgeable of the local conditions, right, as they had evolved against the backdrop of so many traumas. Right, from Absolutely. The, since the Sour Revolution uh, up there, to the, there uh, were, 2001. There was a gap of at least 20, 20 plus years in, in, the, in, in, the, in the memories and the experience of most of those people who also came right. from outside to Afghanistan. And therefore, disconnected with the society, with some good ideas, but then inability to understand how the institutional culture works uh, in, in that post-war okay. society. And what are the priorities of people? Ordinary Afghans wanted to be treated equally by law, to, like any other citizen. They wanted right. accountability for anybody who did wrong. Right. They wanted justice for those wrongdoings. They wanted their dignity to be respected and human rights to be respected and a government that could serve to the people right. and be a, a, a responsive to the people's request and that's why they voted overwhelmingly for democratic institutions to be enshrined in our constitution Absolutely. but then there was failures of leadership mm -hmm. uh, short-sighted of our political elite where they thought that it is the international community's responsibility to do everything for them right. and it was the failure of international partners that they thought that they should do it in every one-year plan. That's right. And it was short-termism, so we had 21-year plans Absolutely. to the end. And I gave you one example on, on the development side. The development side, Afghanistan received enormous amount of international aid. The United States generously contributed to it. But then the way the aid was implemented and given was very much wrongly done. Right. It was... Uh, uh, distributed or divided in a small pockets right. and then scattered around thousands of priorities. W without any kind of oversight. There wasn't and, and as you mentioned, a vast amount of aid that far exceeded the absorptive capacity of the Afghan economy. Absolutely. And then what it did, it was there was no oversight and monitoring, but importantly, the performance was counted of those implementing organizations on the rate that they burn many. Actually, it was called the burn rate. The burn rate. Right, right, which confuses activity, activity and spending with progress. Absolutely. The performance was not about the outcome, to see what outcome these, these would bring. And that's where the sense of dependency expanded. We Afghans, our leaders, have failed to understand it and our international partners who have had experience of, of these kind of institutional and long-term development, they also failed to think longer term and to see, create foundations for economic development. Major infrastructure uh, uh, projects were not focused. Afghanistan is an agricultural country. Like $500 million were given to aid every year, at least on civilian side. And it was uh, collectively close to $2 billion every year. And Afghanistan needed like five major or ten major hydroelectricity dams that would irrigate tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of lands and recruit for jobs and create jobs for hundreds of thousands of people. And all of that would have not been $2 billion. 
of one year civilian aid. And that would have diffused the Taliban to recruit population. Of course, the operations, some of the operations that went wrong, including the civilian casualties, the operations of arrests of people, which we Afghans tried to score against our rivals yeah. and then provide wrong information to coalition forces. Right. And, and therefore, people were arrested and tortured, and, and that also had bad impact in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the people's expectation right. and was a good tool for Taliban to recruit it. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the issue of regional failures. We had Pakistan from the beginning not being genuine and a faithful partner with the United States and the rest. And I was always amazed uh, uh, that why uh, the leadership in the United States could not be harder on Pakistanis while American sons and daughters were being uh, uh, attacked yeah. by those who were planning from Pakistan. Yeah. Um, so the, 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 the failure was in multi-layers. Yes. Uh, and if, I just wonder if I could just go back to your initial point. I mean, one, of the, one of the chapters in, 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 uh, in Battlegrounds is a one-year war fought 20 times over, which you alluded to. And I really think, Nader, as I look back on it, it was the short-term approach to what was a long-term challenge that actually lengthened the war and, and made it much, much more costly. And, and that short-term um, approach prioritized withdrawal, getting out, overachieving that sustainable political outcome. Not to, as you mentioned, not, not to make Afghanistan Denmark, yeah. but just to help Afghanistan become Afghanistan again. And I sensed really with the first elections, 2003, then later on, uh, 2006 and seven. Uh, when we kept declaring that we're about to withdraw, Afghan leaders looked over their shoulders, you know, who's, who's got our back? Nobody. So let's cut some deals internally. And what I sensed and what you helped me learn about in 2010 when we first started working together is that the political settlement in Afghanistan had become wholly reliant on unchecked criminality. Yes. And in exchange for license to loot uh, to the state, essentially, mm -hmm. many of these political actors now have become organized crime bosses. Yes. Uh, they, they gave their fealty to the government in exchange for impunity Absolutely. and license to steal. And, uh, and could you describe that, that political dynamic? Because there's a sense, right, and this is, I, I know, offensive to you and, and to me, who, because I have so many Afghan friends. You know, Afghans, you know, they're just corrupt people, man. You know? And what I've found is that, that Afghan, actually the Afghan culture is intolerant yes. of corruption. Yes. And this was fundamentally a political problem associated with these criminalized patronage networks. Yeah. Absolutely, HR. What, what has happened, the Soviet invasion have affected the country in so many ways. Not only millions of people who died in these bombardments that we see the similar patterns of behavior today in Ukraine, but also it teared apart the fabric of our society. And then the sense of uncertainty start growing. And, and trauma. And trauma with that. And within that, organized crime groups start hijacking both the society and the state. And then when this new era came, the political capital become uh, 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 those weapons that they have had right. and then the networks they have had. And therefore, they were intimidating the state. And then we failed. The, the political, new political leaders have failed to understand that what is the important element for Afghanistan's stability long term. Mm -hmm. In short term, you can, you can bring these kind of people into one tent, but to change their behavior within a different culture of governance. 
But when it, uh, it happened, the new system only empowered them. And our international partners also, within all these experiences, from UN to, to United States engaged and, and the Europeans, they didn't come and tell us to say, hey, the first thing is that you need to have an electoral system that is uh, uh, very, very tested and shielded against the wrongdoings. Mm -hmm. Because our political stability and credibility and legitimacy of the government coming out of it that would bias stability yeah. would go through this institution. So no investment on strengthening the institutional right, capability right. of the state to gain credibility at the political side and marginalize these bad elements. So what happened in the first parliamentarian elections, a lot of bad guys abused the failure of institutions that the UN was heavily involved, that but was not waterproof, that was not helped to build the right institutional element against the corruption and fraud, electoral fraud. They came to the parliament through fraud. And then fraud become part of the culture of electoral process mm -hmm. in our society. It is surprising to see $500 million in four elections to be spent, but we leave with no institutional capacity uh, to, to, to guarantee our democratic process and make it credible. President Karzai failed on that, and President Rani miserably failed on that also because they needed to clean them. Well, and they were competitive, right? It was competitive fraud in a lot of these cases. Absolutely. And you know, this is what's important, I think, to understand about democracy, right? A democracy works if people believe they have a say in how they're governed. I mean, we see this in the United States today, really members of both political parties uh, are, are really compromising our principles and our confidence in democratic processes and elections to score partisan points. And, and of course, then people conclude, well, the only way I can advance my interests is to affiliate with one of these groups. Yeah. Look to them for protection, not protection under rule of law. And you know, of course, these, these groups uh, you know, are stakeholders in state weakness yeah. because it's the weakness of the state that gives them freedom of action and, and gives them impunity as well. And it, it, it exactly, you know, what happened because the institutions of, of state become weaker and weaker instead of gaining strength to, to treat ev everybody equally, people try to find ways to capture the institutions further so that it could serve them. Mm -hmm. In my conversations with the political leaders there, I, I always raise this issue of Afghanistan's, Afghanistan could do with lesser amount of economic development in the short to midterm, but cannot do with political instability. Mm -hmm. To address the political instability, you need to clean the governance system, especially the governance of election and electoral yeah. process. So people can believe that somebody who is elected and the power is legitimate. So we address the legitimacy of uh, uh, power crisis first and foremost. Both our international partners, including the United States at that time, did not put enough attention and effort to clean it up, but also our own leaders had an interest in keeping it uh, uh, corrupt, fraudulent, and dysfunctional because that was the way they, they thought they were holding to the power and, and get into the office and continue to be there. And we started to talk about the trauma, right? The trauma of I mean, let's just say the, you know, the, the aftermath of the Soviet occupation, the Civil War from 92 to 96. And, and so these, these criminal actors were motivated by a political agenda 
I think, criminal agendas, but political yes. agendas to build up a power base in advance of a post-U.S., post-coalition Afghanistan. Because what was in everybody's mind is, is a return of 92 to 96 in the Civil War. And the way you build up that power base is the commoditization or the sale of positions, right? The, you know, the diversion of state revenue at borders and, air, and airports, the, 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 uh, the diversion of, of all forms of aid, graft uh, off the top of contracts, but also selling fuel that the military needs or weapons you know, mm -hmm. that the military needs. And all of this is weakening the state. Could you talk a, a little bit about the political motives behind, um, you know, but behind corruption, but also about the trauma? Because you studied that in, in depth. Uh, when you did the assessment of human rights violations, um, crimes against humanity uh, during the during the civil war period and, and during the Taliban period, well, uh, HR, uh, your your previous point about the culture and Afghan culture, what I studied in uh, the twenty three years of war, and what has happened, which group did what, mm -hmm. and how the population have suffered. I was amazed to see the level of people's anger against the corruption and yeah. their intolerance Absolutely. against the impunity. Yeah. It took us three and a half years to go across the country and talk to eyewitnesses, to communities who were affected, communities who were bombarded by the Soviet planes. And then like we see the same scenes today in, in Ukraine where mm -hmm. people lose everything. Or in Syria for that in matter. In Syria, Again, that matter. And, and, and before that in, in Chechnya and other yeah, places. Yeah. So what, what happened uh, uh, when we were asking people uh, that what happened, are you a victim or uh, wanted to hear their stories? They would always say, so-and-so family or so-and-so group in this other village have suffered more than us. No. So can, can more attention to be given to them and also uh, their story could be heard too. So this was this sense of generosity, generosity right, right. and empathy, empathy yeah, yeah. That, that was across the country. And we mm -hmm. saw that this is how a shared history is made there. Mm -hmm. But then we also saw that how people on behalf of ethnicities mm -hmm. and claiming that they're leaders of that ethnic group mm -hmm. have committed atrocities against the same ethnic group. Right. and against others also. And then that created a situation where impunity has become a norm. Right. And that norm was brought into the system. And then when the, the new system was built with honoring that sense of impunity and mm -hmm. those who were responsible for it, then it become a source for a, a, a example for the other generations wrongly that, okay, that guy, I've done all the wrong things, and is now making a lot of money also. Yeah. So why yeah. I should not? And then it came to a, to a time where these individuals have seen that there's no chicks, of course. The government has a tolerance toward what they do and mm -hmm. steal. But also, there is a survival issue also. Sure. They were afraid. They have seen the 90s. Mm -hmm. They have seen what has happened. And the entire population with the trauma of 90s that they have had, mm -hmm. that they were left with no food, they have left with nothing, suffered in refugee camps and, and forced to, to leave their hometowns. Mm -hmm. And that trauma was forcing a lot of people to think of survival. Yeah. And consistency of the messages were not there from our international partners because this one year planning, this year is critical, next year we may pull out. Right. And then they announcing it, I mean, I'm thinking of Secretary Rumsfeld. A lot of people remember the 
the speech that President George uh, W. Bush gave on the aircraft carrier about Iraq, that really the mission accomplished banner in the background. But forget that Secretary Rumsfeld was in Kabul the same day, yeah. saying, "Hey, we're we're out of here," you know. Absolutely. And, and and of course, this encouraged all, you know a lot of the short term building up of, of uh, power bases. And you know, um, now can you talk a little bit more about uh, you know a, a, about the effect that this had on state institutions and functions? And you know, when when we formed this this task force, consulted with you and others to reduce the threat of corruption and organized crime such that it was no longer fatal to the Afghan state. That was our mission, right? Not, not yeah. to make Afghanistan Denmark, but to help Afghanistan, you know, be Afghanistan, mm -hmm. uh, still probably a violent place, still a place you know, bad, combating corruption and organized crime, but a state that's not under the control of a terrorist organization like it, like it, like it is today. You know, what, what effect did this kind of corruption, organized crime have on people and on, uh, on institutions? A lot of it. It, it undermined the credibility of the government itself. Mm -hmm. It undermined the ability of the government to claim that we're here for you, for people. And then it provided opportunity for Taliban to exploit it further. As mm -hmm. an example, it's true that Afghanistan's security forces were dependent to a large degree to uh, international forces support financially mm -hmm. provided by the United States and also to logistical support. Logistics and maintenance and, and maintenance, intelligence. Intelligence and, and all of that. But air, air support. Yeah. Exactly. But it's also true that throughout all these years, we could not show that kind of a leadership to come to you to say, look, for Afghan forces to sustain, we need to build capabilities that we can run our logistics. Yeah. But then to run it clean and corruption free. Yeah. You are right to be worried about giving one billion or four billion dollar to an institution that does not have the absor absorption capacity, and there are people who already are opening pockets for it. Sure. So to 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 save on the money. But then it was a failure on both sides. There was this short term that you as, as head of uh, uh, Joint Task uh, 435 uh, uh, were pushing for these institutional change within Afghan institutions. Mm -hmm. But I believe that similar level of commitment and push did not continue. So it was a failure at the part of the U.S. Uh, who were involved closely in building these capacities mm -hmm. and it was significant failure because we were the recipient. It was an institution for us for us to build that kind of institutions that could stand to the days that it came to be alone on ourselves, And the messages that came from Secretary Rumsfeld, and then that was continued through every administration. Well, there was this right. sense of, that we will be on our own, that's right. but then we could not, we failed to translate that into strengthening our institutions but then some of us who were in position of power, we tried to put the interest of self and survival sure. and then uh, uh, try to start yeah. stealing instead of uh, 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 focusing the other way. And then the region was encouraged by us. Mm -hmm. The region decided, Pakistan, other countries including Iran, Russia and others, they decided that the U.S. is leaving. That's right. And therefore we need to promote and support our own assets. Mm -hmm. And Taliban become again an asset yeah. for the day, which is today, for Pakistan, despite everything. Right. And they start uh, 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 exploiting that inconsistency uh, in the longer term uh, uh, right. direction. You may have heard the quotation from a former ISI official who said that in the 1980s, we helped defeat a superpower with the help exactly. of the United States. And then in, in 2000, 
you know, 20, uh, 21, we helped defeat the United States with the help of the United States. And, and uh, really the, you know, I, I call it in, in the book a really egregious serial gullibility uh, yes. with the Pakistanis. Yes. Could you explain some of the efforts that you saw over time to, to try to accommodate with the Pakistanis? I know there were a lot of Afghan-Pakistan talks and, and what you concluded from those efforts and, and your observation on, on why we experienced this sort of serial gullibility. I, I think during the Trump administration, we administered a corrective to it. I think we sent a very strong message uh, to Pakistan in the context of the South Asia strategy, which, yeah. I mean, not I don't know what you, your assessment is of it, but I think it was the first time we had a sustainable and a reasoned approach to the war yeah. in place. Uh, but then it was reversed. I mean, when, when I saw Imran Khan sitting in the Oval Office with, yes. with President Trump after I left, I just about fell out of my chair, you know? Mm -hmm. So how did, how, did, how did the Pakistanis affect this kind of, uh, you know, this kind of you know, really uh, extraordinary deception uh, of, uh, of American leaders? Well, I, I would say if I look to the entire uh, uh, 20 years and the entire uh, uh, enterprise and, and, and this project or, or, or Afghanistan uh, rebuilding, uh, as 100% of it, if 50% of it was our failure collectively, uh, our lack of leadership and international communities' inability to understand what, what's needed, at least 50% of it was the region, and especially Pakistan. Yeah. And it's deception and continued. When I, when I look at the history of Pakistan relation with the United States, and then throughout half a century, it, it left on this deception and blackmailing of this happens, or mm -hmm. the Soviet invasion, and then asking U.S. to to give Pakistan certain things, and mm -hmm. from F-16 to other uh, uh, military and civilian aid, and continue doing that, and nobody in Washington begin to question that, mm -hmm. up until the time that you uh, engaged in developing the South Asian strategy, where Pakistan was already so much exposed, but nobody was holding it accountable. Billions of dollars was provided to Pakistan, and the, the, the Pakistani general, uh, Durrani, uh, former ISI chief, is very right in that, that they, they have defeated the United States by the United States money, because it was billions of dollars uh, that the U.S. was providing to Pakistan. So what the Pakistani effect, I was part of a number of things that I've seen firsthand. When I joined the government, uh, so soon there was this quadrilateral uh, the Quad meetings, where mm -hmm. it was Afghanistan, Pakistan, United States, and China. And it was the first meeting where I, I attended also in Islamabad. We were very frank and we were very direct, putting things on table, telling the Pakistani Prime Minister, President Rani told uh, Pakistani Prime Minister, and our delegation engaged with them, saying, let's talk frankly. What is your legitimate concern in Afghanistan? Can we stop this deceiving? And they continued. And, and by the way, the Chinese stood with the Pakistanis. Of course. And, and then I remember at one point that a senior U.S. official there, which we, I and Minister Atma were argue, was arguing with her, saying that we need to use different languages because these languages would bite us later on. Mm -hmm. uh, as an example, intra-Afghan uh, 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 discussions or dialogue was something to undermine the state itself and divide it back to f uh, factions, the groups. Yeah. And we argued with her and she was saying no because Pakistanis doesn't agree. 
and therefore I need to get an, uh, uh, an authorization back from uh, Washington, and it's late, we need to issue this statement. The words carry a lot, and why Pakistanis were investing in this word to, to uh, 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 fragment Delegi back. And delegitimize, and delegitimize the, the, the government the of Kabul, the government, which exactly. then we doubled down on uh, with uh, the, the formation, uh, or really agreeing to the Taliban Political Council, Absolutely. asking the gutteries to convene that in, in Doha. I want to just go back for a second about uh, prioritizing withdrawal and saying we're leaving. I think that that reached a, you know, a, 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 a sort of a perverse level almost uh, when the Obama administration announced the reinforced security effort in Afghanistan in 2009, and then released the timeline for withdrawal like yes. at the same time. Absolutely. Now, in what war has that ever worked to give your enemy the timeline for your withdrawal, to stop targeting the enemy ag aggressively as they did in, in later years? And then say, oh, we want to we want to negotiate a favorable agreement. So, can you describe maybe some of your frustration with this, and then and then maybe your experience later, after the Trump administration backed off of the South Asia strategy, that it that it prosecuted really only from 2017 to 2019, mm -hmm. and then sent Ambassador Zal Khalilzad essentially, I think, to to surrender to the Taliban, okay. uh, and to put together really a, a withdrawal plan, regardless of what the effect would be. Uh, in Afghanistan, you were given the, I mean, the very difficult, I'm sure frustrating task of participating in those negotiations. What can you tell our viewers that they don't know about how those negotiations went and what your experience was? Well, uh, to get to, to the first, the 2009, I was a civil society guy at that mm -hmm. time, and I was at the Chicago summit of NATO where the decision was to do the surge and increase number of troops, but at the same time, at the same uh, uh, time announcing a date for withdrawal. And it was a sense of deja vu. And I knew that the Taliban would outweigh us. Sure. They, they always would say we have, uh, yeah, they have the time, have the watches, we have, yeah, we we have, have the, the time, time yeah, and we right, will yeah. continue. Right. And that's exactly what has happened. It was serving, that announcement of a withdrawal timeline was serving directly against the objective of the surge itself. Mm -hmm. And it was unfortunately that way. And then uh, uh, as part of that, just a year, not even a year from that timeline sitting, there was a reset of the withdrawal time again because President Karzai was unhappy on certain things and then he flew here and then well, you had, had a you conversation. You had the late Ambassador Holbrook yes. who was essentially bolstering Karzai's political opponents during the election. Yeah. Well, if you're going to do that, I mean, the political opponents should probably win, you know. <laughs> yes. but, but, so what you have is a really angry President Karzai. And then, of course, who took advantage of that? The Pakistanis. The Pakistanis. And the appointment of Horam. Yes. And, and this is the, you want to talk about that? Talk about really how the Pakistanis were very good at political intrigue and subversion as well. Yeah. Know? So uh, uh, Pakistanis, while not leaving very clear uh, uh, evidence there, but through the different networks of individuals, placing them around the president and, and, and other institutions, they have tried to create this sense of toxic environment where a, a complete sense of distrust emerged and President Karzai and some of other political leaders were floating around with uh, this conspiracy conspiracy theories. theories. This is that, you know, this is for for our viewers who you know who are Shakespeare fans. This is Othello and Iago. Yes. And I don't I don't know if President Karzai was as pure as Othello, but <laughs> yes. but but Koram was as devious as Iago was for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
And then what happened, mm -hmm. then President Carter coming back, resetting the timeline of withdrawal with President Obama. And then we were saying, oh my goodness, this is an invitation for failure. You collectively and allies like uh, uh, members of NATO was telling me and different uh, uh, diplomats that they were appalled by this because we made a collective decision and it was Washington unilaterally made the decision right. to reset. And uh, by the way, not reflecting the will of the Afghan people. Do you want to, I mean, just maybe tell our viewers about the lawyer jerga that was convened as Karzai yeah. was trying to accelerate the timeline for withdrawal and, and then all uh, Afghan leaders spoke from across the country. I mean, Absolutely. Uh, there, was, there was the bilateral security agreement that Afghanistan needed to sign with the United States. Right. And President Karzai had some conditions about it, and he was reluctant to sign it. For historical reason, he didn't want it to be, this to be his legacy because he was already being blamed that he was brought by the United States and he was a puppet and all of that. So he didn't want it this to is sign 2011, it. This 2011-12. Yes. Yeah, right. And then he invited uh, 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 a grand assembly of traditional uh, assembly of lawyer jerga. And in the, that jerga, he was expecting, he made few interventions and speeches to provoke people, mm -hmm. but then people collectively voted for this bilateral security agreement and wanted the United States to have a presence and security relation with Afghanistan for longer term. And it was the desire of Afghan public because we, our people are so much aware that we are living in a very bad geography, a strategic but bad geography with a neighborhood that is, that has not been good with us, and also they have been places for trouble for the rest of the world. Right. So they wanted this strategic partnership to continue. Despite the efforts that President Karzai made, people approved this strategic partnership and voted for it. And then fast forward, if you question about the Doha, the, the, Doha, the TPC, the, the uh, Taiwan was, Political Commission. When, when the South Asia strategy was announced, a sense of consistency returned, and people yeah. start building some level of confidence that the businesses start not taking their businesses out of the country, Afghan business community. And, and, and for, for our viewers, if they want to go back to this, they should take a look at President Trump's speech in August 2017. Yes. Because it laid it out, I think, quite clearly. Yeah. Sadly, it was abandoned. Yes. But I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. And then again, unfortunately, sadly, it was abandoned. And then it came with the uh, 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 Doha process. Mm -hmm. um, Unfortunately, the Taliban political office was a, uh, a deception front office. Yes. It did not have... This is Mullah Bardar, someone that uh, Ambassador Khalilzad got released by the Pakistanis, Pakistanis, who became the shop window, essentially, for yes. the ISI, yeah. and had no real authority. No. Um, and not only him, there were five others released from Guantanamo. So, some of the most heinous people heinous on earth, people. living in five-star hotels, absolutely traveling with impunity, raising money from Gulf donors. I mean, and then it, receiving a lot of financial support from the host country, also, course, unfortunately. Yeah. And then it become a window for this plan for withdrawal of the U.S. forces. And, and these are people, as our viewers know, who send their their daughters to, to international private schools but while they bomb. You know, bomb, bomb girls' schools in Afghanistan, yeah. right? Yeah. These are the, the height of hypocrisy and callousness. Absolutely. And what they did, they, they start negotiating with the United States. And, and then once the negotiation, throughout the negotiation, I've engaged so many times with the U.S. delegation that was running the negotiation and asking the questions. That, that these were questions in the minds of every single Afghan, saying, are you in a path to withdraw the, and extract the U.S.? forces from Afghanistan? And if yes, why you need 
to negotiate with Taliban to do that. Mm -hmm. Because you came to Afghanistan, there was no negotiation. The forces uh, ceiling and level come to 130,000. Mm -hmm. You didn't need to negotiate that. You brought it back down to 2,000 or to 14,000. Uh, uh, there was also not, you didn't need permission from anybody. Right. We had a bilateral security agreement and based on that we could arrange the withdrawal. And the, and the Afghans were bearing, bearing the brunt of the fight against, against Absolutely, and there was many years that our forces were, were uh, uh, running the fights and everything. And then what happened, the entire process of become a promotion of Taliban agenda yeah. and emboldening the Taliban and then laying out a platform for Taliban where the foreign ministers and others would line up from different countries to meet them. And why? Because the ambassadors Al and others were either buying what the Taliban were saying or fall into naively into that trap. Unfortunately, yeah. when I look now to the Doha agreement or later on when it was concluded, I say, where is the mate of the United States in this document? Mm -hmm. How you surrender with no obligation on Taliban and all obligation on the United Ab States. Absolutely. And then the messaging... Except the only obligation was don't target our forces. Yes. Kill as many Afghans as you want. Absolutely. And they Which did. they did in a maternity hospital. Everywhere. In girls' schools. In the provinces. And, and we did nothing to, yeah. to, to continue to actively pursue the Taliban because we took a step back. Yes, indeed. Right, to, to try to s secure this agreement. Every Afghan wanted to see this war end in a peaceful manner. The cost of it was so big to Afghan population. The coffins that were going to our villages from the army was 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 large number, and it was unbearable. Yes, we wanted to end this conflict, but to end it dignifiedly, right. to end that our gains will will be preserved and to end it not the way that it ended that the Taliban goes and say we defeated the United States and the rest yeah. of the international community. They told me in the face in the negotiation table. So it was very badly handled. It was not in accordance to what the United States would sign an agreement with with big countries, let alone to a terrorist group. Mm -hmm. And it facilitated a, a slogan for jihadists around the world. They say look at Taliban, they defeated uh, U.S. and NATO, we can do it also. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, the Taliban today has this sense of arrogance, terrifying, torturing, killing and suppressing its own population because they say, we don't care what the people think. We want it and we want to. And it is a direct doing of the Doha process. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. the kind of PR, uh, both Ambassador Zal and that process was running on behalf of uh, Taliban was very bad. Yes, of course, President Ghani and few people around uh, uh, at our government miscalculated big way. Uh, they did not have the, the, the long-sighted that was required, the leadership that needed to take some tough decisions and be pragmatist at the times of difficulty. So I would, I would as an Afghan, see to both of this uh, two gentlemen and mm -hmm. to see why they could not see what was coming and why their own personal thing was priority than, than what uh, the country needed. So now we talked a little bit about explaining the, the rapid collapse of the, of the Afghan government and security forces in July and August of, uh, of, of 2021. But really just, I wonder if you might talk a, a little bit more about the psychological blows that were delivered to the Afghan people sadly, you know, by the United States. And I think what's really most disappointing about this story 
is that if you're going to leave, hey, just leave. But I think what we wound up doing was actually partnering with the Taliban against the Afghan government in, in a number of, of ways. First of all, backing away from the battlefield, not actively targeting the Taliban during the negotiations. Then delivering really psychological blow after psychological blow, not negotiating with the Afghan government present. Uh, then, of course, uh, you know, the withdrawal of support over time uh, uh, for Afghan security forces, forcing the Afghan government to release 5,000 of some of the most heinous criminals on earth who immediately went back to terrorizing the population, and then publicizing this timeline for withdrawal, uh, which allowed the Taliban to go around to you know, Afghan military leaders and political leaders and, and pose them with a, with, with a choice, yeah. either accommodate with us or we kill you and your family. So what was it like to be you know, negotiating with you know, these people, um, these terrorists, while these blows are being delivered to your government? And, and could you explain kind of the psychological effect that, uh, that, that U.S. behavior during these uh, negotiations had on the overall will uh, to sustain uh, you know, the Afghan state and to fight against the Taliban? Uh, uh, sure, there were two key issues that really helped us brought to, to where, uh, or unfortunately, uh, to where we are today. One was the psychological impact of the communication and the engagement of the United States and, and the delegation in Doha including the messages. As an example, you review every single tweet that the special envoy have made beginning 2019. Uh, uh, ambassador Khalilzad. It was not uh, even the sequence of uh, uh, refer. Referring to Afghan Islamic Republic become like a, a kind of a taboo in those tweets. It was first the Taliban, the, uh, 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 and then followed by the Islamic Republic. I raced it with them. I say, why are you shying from a government that is legitimate and internationally recognized and is your partner? To mention it first and gave it more legitimacy and authority than a group that you're negotiating. And then saying that the, the forces wouldn't last few months and saying that you're losing the territory and saying it publicly. There are differences by, between partners. Partners could have disagreements significantly, but those disagreements need to be sorted out behind closed door together. I know President Ghani was a very difficult person. He would front load everything and then he would sound as he is against the peace process. But you need to work with that. You has had leverage to force him to change. But then also the second element was our own doing. We made the most wrong choices and practices applied in our security forces. Consistent changes. Every three months, leaders were changed. Different ranks were changed. Inexperienced individuals were put in charge, the czar of the, like our national security advisor had zero military experience. And he was given the cult of a president and was given every authority and he started removing people left and right. Nobody within the ranks felt that they have a security of job and they did not felt that they are led by a professional army officer mm -hmm. or a professional security guy. So they start breaking the chain of command already. Combination of this two factor internally, lack of clarity in our public that where this ends, a feeling that the U.S. created, that was Ambassador Zal and others, that the, the Taliban are winning side, have created this psychology that a lot of people thought 
should we save ourselves or fight for few people that are sitting in Kabul yeah. in futility, uh, yeah. and, 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 and which would not have a result. Yeah. And it created this, this, this situation. Some of us did raise all of this with both sides, with Zal and also with President Ghani and with uh, uh, our own colleagues within the government. But uh, uh, I wish we have done it more and we, uh, I wish we, we were more aggressive in, in our voices uh, uh, in, in that time. Uh, you know, as we watch uh, the courageous Ukrainian people defend their country, and you saw the collapse in Afghanistan, you realize war really is a contest of wills. And there's a psychological dynamic in war that, that really defies any kind of ability to predict the outcome. And, and I think it was these psychological blows that, that really led to the, in the most proximate period of time, to, to, that, to that collapse. I'd like to talk with you a little bit about the, the nature of the enemy. I still call them the enemy, yes. uh, the, the, the Taliban. Uh, and I think what was extraordinary about this period is the extreme self-delusion of uh, many Americans creating in their minds the enemy they would might prefer to fight or to accommodate with rather than the Taliban as they actually are. And this, of course, was going to be a, a Taliban that would share power. This would be a Taliban that would, that would uh, impose a more benign form of Sharia Right and and be sensitive, you know, to women's rights and girls' education. Um, a Taliban that would be completely separate from other jihadist terrorist organizations. I mean, how did you watch this kind of delusion develop? And could you make a comment, maybe, uh, on the Taliban today with Habibullah Akhundzada in charge and Siraj Khan's Minister of Interior? I mean, I, I talked to a, a senior American official uh, when the capitulation negotiations were ongoing, which I don't know what else to call him. Yes. And he went off about the deficiencies of President Ghani. And my response to him was, hey, do you prefer Haibatullah Akhundzada, a guy who encouraged his 14-year-old son to commit mass murder by suicide? Yes. I mean, so could you explain the self-delusion and how you were viewing it from an Afghan perspective? Well, it, uh, General, I, in 2019, there was a dialogue between Afghan Islamic Republic side, which was a very diverse group of people, and the Taliban. And I spoke on behalf of the Islamic Republic side. So at when, the we opening, say, when we say Islamic Republic, just so our viewers know, we mean the government of Afghanistan. The government of Afghanistan. Right, right. Uh, and then after 18 hours of discussion and negotiation, the, the negotiation on a declaration of two pages took us 13 hours. Uh, we concluded, uh, and my conclusion at that time was, that the Taliban, these people are absolutely the same. I, uh, like I was put in prison by the Taliban during their first uh, uh, rule. I was in Afghanistan. I was tortured by them and everything else. And then I saw them throughout the years, uh, post-2001, and then sitting in front of them and negotiating with them, I saw there was no difference between them. They were still against women's rights. They were still against talking about foreign terrorists. Uh, they, they were uh, against the responsible withdrawal of the foreign troops. And then at the corridor, Ambassador Zal came, and there was these two Taliban uh, standing with, with us. It was at the brick that somebody was working on a draft. And he said, why it's taking too long? Ambassador Zal said. And the Taliban said, this guy is dragging his feet. 
And Zhao said, is that so? I said, yeah. Do you want to know why I'm dragging my feet? He said, yeah, what? And I said, they don't want to denounce the foreign terrorists. Mm -hmm. They don't want to acknowledge that women rights need to be respected. And they also don't want a responsible withdrawal. And then in that moment, the Taliban got very agitated and very nervous because they already, Ambassador Zal was telling he us made, that they, they, he made, they made these false promises. Absolutely. And know. then uh, that was reflected later on through and then a recognition of them after a month and a half when the negotiation started, my conclusion was that they're not for the shared future, that they're so much both arrogant and self-centered, they are not changed. They wouldn't change on women rights. They wouldn't change on suppressive application of their rule in the country. And we need to be ready to prepare for that kind of a situation. Mm -hmm. And on the table, they would always make a reference to that, that they have, we don't care about you because we signed an agreement with the United States and they are leaving. And on one occasion they said, I said, no, they wouldn't leave that way. A responsible withdrawal will be. And I'm sorry to, to give that exact word and a quotation. Mm -hmm. One of the setting ministers of Taliban, uh, uh, Sheikh Dalawar, told me, oh, what are you talking about? The U.S., they are running away. They're defeated. They're running away. Their tails between their legs. Yeah. So right. to referring to, uh, to, to a situation. And, and that was their understanding. And it created a psychology their in their favor. Their understanding was that they defeated the world superpower. Absolutely. Without, I mean, the, what they should be acknowledging is that we defeated ourselves, I think, yeah. essentially. Um, you know, we, we, I'd like to talk a little bit, we, we're almost running out of time, but there's so much to cover and your insights are so valuable, but you know, what, what is your read of the situation today, right? I see somebody like Siraj Haqqani, uh, who is in charge of the Ministry of Interior. We know from experience it's bad when terrorists uh, control a state and state resources. Uh, he gave a speech a few months ago in Kandahar, and if you saw the translation mm -hmm. of the speech, well, you didn't need to see the translation. You <laughs> can read it. I had to see the translation. And, and, uh, and in it, he boasted that over time he had helped uh, uh, over 130 adolescents, uh, young teenagers, become suicide bombers in Afghanistan. He was boasting of this. Yes. He had murdered many, you know, thousands maybe of, of, of Afghans, and he was bragging about that. And then he also was bragging about how many passports he had issued. Uh, to fellow terrorists, essentially. Yeah. And there is still this misunderstanding, you know, that maybe that we can partner with the Taliban against other terrorist organizations when actually the Taliban is part of a transnational terrorist network that includes even elements of ISIS that they cooperate with, as they did in the August attack that killed 13 Americans, I believe. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not seeing any intelligence, but the Haqqanis ran, as you know, for many years, the, the Kabul attack network and often used ISIS agents because these are people who share resources and bomb-making expertise and finances in kind of a terrorist ecosystem. And of course, the Haqqani network is at the nexus of the state support for terrorism through the Pakistan's inner services intelligence. Uh, and they're the main conduit to Al-Qaeda. And they're the main protectors of, of Zawahiri, the, the, the head of Al-Qaeda. And by the way, <laughs> You might want, if you have a chance to talk more specifics about the brigade that took over Kabul airport, there's essentially an Al-Qaeda brigade that's under Haqqani control. I mean, this delusion that, you know, it's okay because we can partner with the Taliban against terrorists is, is a complete pipe dream. Um, Absolutely. So what's your assessment today of what is at stake 
in Afghanistan. In terms of the jihadist terrorist threat to Afghans, certainly, who are living in this hell now every day, but, but to, to all civilized people. Yeah, uh, uh, General, if I may quickly on one point, uh, the example you gave of, of Ukraine, that they're courageously fighting and, mm -hmm. and our situation. Just quickly, in, for 10 years in the 80s, we fought against the former Soviet Union, 100,000 troops and then uh, at that time. But at this time, it's as much of a battle of will and an element of will, it's that much of an element of leadership and courage to stand for what is right. Mm -hmm. And what we saw, unfortunately, that was missing, an erosion of leadership from number of over, years. Over time. Over can, I, can I make one point to make sure. a correction, please? 70,000 Afghans gave their lives Absolutely. on a modern-day frontier between barbarism and civilization. So I do never want to diminish Thank the you. Afghan people's will, and I didn't mean to do so. Thank you. I meant really to relate it to the the blows that we delivered that Absolutely. undermined will at the Absolutely. end. So thank Absolutely. you for the opportunity to correct that. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Yeah. And then uh, coming to, uh, to to the current composition and the, the uh, and the future, it was an absolute f uh, naivete at the part of those from the United States that engaged directly with the Taliban to think that those people in Doha, that whatever they say is going to be the, the features of a Taliban government in Kabul. They had no power. They were a window shop. They were uh, uh, just a face. They had no power. Now currently, what, what is who, and who has the power, you, you, you very well laid out the, 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 the landscape. So you have those that uh, Mullah Haibatullah, nobody has seen his face, but he seemed to exist, that he, a number of very, very conservative and traditionalist, rigid interpreter of Islamic text that are setting the core policies, including an apartheid against Afghan women, that pushing Afghan women to the dark ages and denying every single right. And they are the ones who are setting also, and um, collectively the Taliban, all of them setting the policies to violate every single rights of Afghans, every single rights of Afghans. So creating a total state of suppression. Now with that, you have then a lot of those around the Kandahar and that area. Second group is, of course, the Haqqani network. Mm -hmm. And Siraj at the top of it, I, I checked on the website before this, this discussion, still uh, on, on, on US official government website says it's one of the most wanted people with millions on, on his aid. And who is running our Ministry of Interior, the de facto or acting Minister of Interior. And they have indicated no uh, 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 element uh, or sign of a changed people because there is a battalion created as part of both Ministry of uh, Defense and Ministry of Interior of suicide squad, suicide battalion. And there is a commander on each of them. One of those commanders, uh, where a governor in Helmand, was just transferred to become commander of the suicide uh, brigadier mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, as, as part of uh, our forces. What worries me the most is this combination of individuals that who only knows how to kill, how to terrorize, and how to carry suicide attacks, combined with the most ideologue individuals that thinks apart from themselves nobody else is pure mm -hmm. okay. so it is a core anybody who does not <laughs> adhere to their 
I, I would call it, their perverted interpretation of, of Islam. Islam yeah. is, 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 is uh, uh, legitimate to it's be It's a non-believer, is a, Absolutely. You know, a rejectionist or a, a, an apostate or whatever category you fall into. Absolutely. Yeah. And in their affiliation, UN report and everything else, uh, every other assessment suggests that their affiliation with the Al-Qaeda have never been severe. It's strongly there. Some of those operative, from what I know, were pulled out to run training uh, programs for that so-called Taliban army mm -hmm. in the facilities, as an example, in Lahman, in the military training uh, uh, facility, and also in Helmand. So they are very much intertwined, both in terms of family relation and marriage, intermarriage, but also in terms of friendship and affiliation. They never de-announced Al-Qaeda, by the way. Mm -hmm. Despite what, what was claimed by the Doha Agreement, they never did that. Their editors, Central Asian, and also even the Chinese, the, the, the Uyghurs, all of them are there and operating and freely roaming around, including some of the attacks that the Daesh is carrying out using the same network of suicide sure. attacks that the Haqqani networks and others were using. Right. So that combination is there. But what makes me more worried that they own a state now with the revenues, right. plus they may go to the, they already started to do what the, in Congos and, and some of the African countries, the mining curse. They are giving left and right mining rights uh, uh, without the uh, uh, whatever uh, uh, due diligence mm -hmm. to finance themselves. Mm -hmm. Chinese companies are visiting other companies from, from the region they are there, uh, from Iran to, to, to other uh, uh, places they are there. And if it is not washed properly, Afghanistan is having the largest reserves of the rare earth, including the lithium. So you're like maybe a transnational terrorist Democratic Republic of Congo is, <laughs> yes. what, is what you're yeah fit is what with you're a lot of yeah. a lot of resources uh, from the mining that does not care about governance and serving the public, mm -hmm. but more providing for whatever bigger ideological agendas that they have to establish, almost establish the caliphate which they have and then expand the caliphate. To, to, to beyond, yeah. uh, almost yeah. nine months, you see no sign of governance. There's no law that people can refer to and, and reference. They have no desire to govern. And that brings me to a point of a discussion in the, 98, uh, in the 1990s I had with one of the Taliban's at the time. And I said, what, what are these Arabs and Chechenes are doing here? And he told me, what's wrong with that? We are part of a bigger Islamic ummah. Today, we need them here. Sure. Tomorrow they may need us in Andalus, referring to Spain. Mm -hmm. So that mentality still exists, but much more multiplied in terms of it is danger. Something out of horizon is not that uh, uh, so some people here now talks about it, is not going to deal with that kind of a threat. Right. That moving slowly, gradually, and smartly than way before that they were in the, uh, in the 90s. And like the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East, uh, Khorasan uh, is, is an ideological and geographic center of Absolutely. jihadist And it has been a reference to, the, to these radical yeah. Islamists. It's, it's a reference that Khorasan and its past and its yeah. future, and that makes a significant strategical point uh, for those groups too. So Nader, you already talked about one alternative future, which is a scary one of jihadist terrorists being able to raise revenue through mining concessions as well as continuing the opium trade yes. and, and, and becoming more and more dangerous because the resources available. 
What are other alternative futures you see for Afghanistan? What should what do we want to leave our viewers with in, in connection with you know the, the, the horrible suffering that we're seeing today, but can you see a path, a different path forward beyond? Of course, Afghanistan today is a transformed country. Our people are very different, very connected with, with each other. Believer on sets of values, despite all what other others been talking about Afghans, I have run surveys and talked to the remote uh, corner of, of, of my country about the values of human rights and of respect uh, uh, to, 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 to women and a democratic participatory processes and their voices and saying in, in decision making. And they believe on it and they would stand for it and they begin to stand. So to begin with, my source of hope is this movement of Avran women activists on the street of Kabul and other cities, that they are in the, in the face of this grave danger. They every day march to the street to demand rights, to work to demand rights for education and their equal say in, in society and politics and in government. That's a source of strength and inspiration. And that's also, you should be proud as a partner that you that you're not today with the government, but you're still a partner with Afghan people, that some of the the seeds that were implant, implanted was because of what you did. And the space you created through the, the brave soldiers and who, who, who were there in, in the villages of, of Helmand and different other parts. Yes, bad things did happen in the war. There were civilian casualties, there were detention, but also these good things need not to be forgotten about it. So those space was used to bring back the, the longer tradition of, of Afghans to expand on those core values. Women are one source. I feel sometimes very, very coward when I see not standing with them on the street in Kabul and other places. There's also Afghan elders, religious elders in different communities. They stood up, for, as an example, for women rights, for women education. That's a strength. And then we are thinking and working actively on building an alliance for democracy, where these individuals, those of us in, uh, outside in exile, can work and give the resources that we can give and the voice that we can give, but the actual people on ground that are trying to connect and build together to push for change mm -hmm. from bottom. Yes, militarily, there are corners of violent uh, activities and, and resistance, but Afghans also want to see, can they change this situation non-violently. And that's what they're working. People are still mobilizing themselves. It will take time, but not long. And I think Afghans will choose a different path uh, uh, and, 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 and to, to press uh, against this repressive regime uh, uh, that, that, is, that is in power. So that's, that's one uh, uh, other scenario. And there is the third scenario that they, the differences among the Taliban themselves uh, of, of because they, some of them are thinking practically that they will lose power again, that they would not survive. And they are in internal battle with somebody among them would start against each other. That will be a, a very bad situation also, but then also it will be a, a way for them to crumble down. What we need at this stage and what we want from our international uh, uh, friends and allies for, uh, for Afghan people, First, to make sure that the civic space for Afghans does not shrink. Mm -hmm. And those people on the ground doing active work and with a lot of risk and credibility that they have, they need to be protected. The voices need to be there. Uh, 
heads of state, if not the secretaries, the, the foreign uh, ministers need to raise them and individual credible voices also. Second, to be prepared for the time that if in two years a situation arises that Afghanistan need to change rapidly, what could be done there? A consistent monitoring of that situation and support of indigenous voices and elements of transformational leadership need to be also looked for that uh, situation, uh, 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 both regionally, internationally and locally. Narnadiri, thank you so much for, for helping us learn more, understand better what is still a battleground important to building a better future for generations to come. A real pleasure to see you again and wonderful to host you your own battlegrounds. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank it's you. a pleasure to be with you. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.